Father, we come now and ask that you would do good work through the scriptures. Help us to believe that the gospel is true and also to believe that it changes us over our entire life as Christians. It um, strengthens us and conforms us into the image of Jesus Christ. And we ask tonight that you would do good uh, work here, that you would help us to trust you even when our lives might be difficult or fragmented or painful. We ask that you would grant faith to those who are doubting and grant hope to those who are suffering and grant love to those who are feeling embittered. We pray that you would do all these things for your glory and we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Brian Chappell in his uh, book called Holiness by Grace tells a story that I read this week that I thought was hilarious. Uh, It's about a woman who was a young mother who had three kids in her house. And as you might imagine, if you have that many kids uh, in your house, her life was oftentimes hectic and tired and very infrequently did she receive uh, thanks or a gratitude for all the work that she put in. And so one day, her husband came home to a sign in the front yard that simply said, Mom on strike. Mom had moved out of the house into the treehouse in the backyard, taken some of her clothes and taken her makeup kit and whatever other things she needed, an iPad. I guess that's all you really need to survive these days. And uh, had moved in until she was appreciated and respected. And she felt that the level of gratitude amongst her children in particular was high enough for her to move back in. And the news actually caught wind of this and did a news story on it. A local television station interviewed the family. And uh, Chapel writes that while the young mother's comments interested him, he really wanted to hear her husband's explanation. And garnering the sympathy of husbands everywhere, the husband shrugged toward the television camera and said, I have the kids doing their chores again, and I've told them to cool it with the sarcasm. We're trying to make amends and do whatever we can to just get her to come out of the treehouse. And Chapel goes on to say that on a human level, the husband's remarks make perfect sense. When we've had a problem with people, or when we fail to meet expectations, particularly in relationships as close and as intimate as marriages and moms and dads with their children, oftentimes um, there are seasons where you just want to get away, and you feel like you're not going to come back and enter again into relationship until, well, until there's change, until there's growth. Now, on a lot of levels, that's an absolutely legitimate thing. But as, as Chapel reflects on that story in his book, and as I thought about it more, he asks us to consider what the kids must have felt a couple of weeks into this experience. They began to wonder, I know my mom loves me, and I've tried to say I'm sorry, but she just won't come out of the treehouse. And he goes on to say what I thought was a very illuminating thing. Oftentimes, if you're here and you follow Jesus, that might be the way that you think of your life with God. You've made a lot of mistakes. You haven't shown him the respect that he deserves or the gratitude that you should show him. And you feel like, yes, you're a Christian. Yes, God has saved you from your sin. Yes, he's brought you into his family, but there's not really any intimacy. You feel like God is, well, that he's hiding from you up in the treehouse, maybe. What we're going to talk about tonight is is the idea of sanctification or Christian growth. 
of what it means to grow in your love for God, in your knowledge of God, in the grace that God gives to us in the gospel. And we're coming to this idea as we make our way through this six-week series called So Great a Salvation. This is week five of six weeks. And what we're doing is looking at the question, what does it really mean to be saved? You know, that's a word we hear all the time in our circles in a city like San Antonio. And we're trying to think about what the Bible says about what that actually means. And the last four weeks, we've looked at what it means to be saved from various perspectives, like looking at a beautiful diamond from different angles. And in each of the prior weeks, we've seen that salvation is summarized, particularly in the New Testament, by using different terms or different ways of thinking. We've talked about ideas like justification, that we are declared righteous by God in his holy courtroom. We've talked about the idea of union with Christ, that what Jesus experienced, we experience, of new birth, being born again, and last week of adoption, of being brought into God's family. All four of those concepts, very important and very biblical, are they're all one-time events that happen to you immediately, the moment in which you trust Jesus with your life and with your death. Theologians use the term monergistic, monergistic, to refer to those events. That word means mono, solo, one, ergo, which is the Greek word for work. There's one person that does the work, and it's God. God alone justifies you and adopts you and unites you to his son and gives you new birth. These are all one-time events. But salvation is talked about in the Bible as something even more than that. In some ways, salvation is spoken of as a process. In some ways, our growth and our being conformed into the image of our Lord Jesus is what it means to be saved. And that's what we're going to transition to thinking about tonight in this sermon, just for the next couple of minutes. The Bible uses the word sanctification. Sanctus sanctus is the Latin for holy. It really just means the process of becoming more and more holy, the process of looking more and more like Jesus. That's also part of what it means to be saved. It's different from the prior four weeks. The prior four weeks were one-time acts of God. This week, the idea of sanctification, while still relying upon the grace of God, also involves, to a certain degree, our own work, our own effort, our own striving. And there's perhaps no better place in the Bible that summarizes how in Christian growth, how in sanctification, how in becoming more and more like Jesus, both God is at work enabling us to go to work, putting sin to death and living under righteousness, then Philippians chapter 2, the text that Tim just read for us. And so what I want to do tonight is break this passage down, these very important verses down, into two big points. And as we think about sanctification, here's the two ideas I want you to take away. First, we see that God, in sanctification, God works in. And secondly, you work out. Very simple, okay? God works in and you work out. So first I want you to see that in 
the process of growing, the process, so to speak, of salvation, of sanctification, God is working in us. He is at work. And if you'll permit me, I'm going to start with verse 13 rather than verse 12. You'll see there that Paul calls us at the end of 12 to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. But then here's where we're going to begin. He says, for, here's why you're to do that. It is God who works in you. God works in. Let me tell you a couple of things about that idea. The first thing I want you to get, and perhaps the most important thing, is simply this. The power for your own work, for your own fight, for your own journey. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, the power for you to follow Jesus more and more faithfully is dependent on every moment upon upon God's work, and in particular upon remembering the facts that God is at work. You know, it's interesting, if you read through particularly the letters of Paul in the New Testament, you'll see again and again and again that when Paul wants people to do something, to obey, or to stop doing something, to stop disobeying, or to look more like Jesus and be nicer to each other, hardly ever does he just sort of beat them up morally and say, you've got to stop doing this and start doing this. Yeah, he does that some, but almost every single time in his letters to Christians and to churches, he tells them that what they need to do to grow, what they need to do to be sanctified is to remember the facts. And the fact in Philippians chapter 2 is that God is in you. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. God is in you. You need to understand that. That's fundamental to what it means to being a Christian. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you need to understand that. That when you place your trust in Jesus, he wipes away your former life. He forgives you of all of your sin. He declares you to be righteous because the righteousness of Jesus is given to you in justification. And remembering those things... Remembering those things enables you to grow. And remembering that not only does God do those things, but he also saves you to come and, to come and dwell in you and with you. That's the fact. That's what Paul says here. He says, work, work out your own salvation because God is in you. You know, maybe one of the best illustrations of that is found in the Bible itself. In the Old Testament, you know, the kind of the meta story of the Old Testament is that God creates a people for himself, the Old, Te- Old Testament nation of Israel. And he rescues them out of bondage and slavery to eat from Egypt, right? And he brings them through all these miraculous signs and miracles into the promised land. And then what does he say to them? He says this all through the Old Testament. He says, I am the Lord your God. I've brought you out of Egypt so that I can be your God and you can be my people, so that I can be with you. And the symbol of that is that as this nomadic nation is going from Egypt to Israel, to the promised land, they're told by God to, to build this ramshackle tent that they have to put up and take down every time they move to a new location, the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is a visible reminder to the Old Testament people of God. And to us today, when we remember the scriptures, that, that God doesn't just save us and forgive us and rescue us from sin and then just sort of leave us to fend for ourselves. No, God saves us in order to dwell with and in us. And Paul is saying here that if you want to grow, you must remember primarily that that is the case. God is in you. 
But he says more. He actually says that God works in you. And look at the text. Not only does God work in you, but he works in you efficiently and purposefully. He does it both, Paul says, to will and to work. In other words, Paul is saying that God is like a master at research and development, and he's a master at execution. He's got a PhD both in operations and in long-term planning. He wills and he works. He has a plan to form you over your life more and more into the person that he made you to be and that indeed you already are in his eyes. God over time is making you into the person in your day-to-day life that he already sees you to be in Jesus. And he's He's about that work all the time. You know, we often say about ourselves or about others when something that we're trying to do falls through the cracks or when a project that one of our colleagues is working on doesn't come out exactly right, we'll say something like, you know, he means well. Or I really gave it my best shot. It just didn't work out the way I intended. You know, God never just means well. That's what Paul's saying here. He's never going to mess up. As he works on you, what he wills, he also works. What he plans, he also accomplishes. God is in you. Paul's saying, believe that, remember that, and working in you effectively and purposefully. But there's even more. He works in you effectively and purposefully, but he also works in you constantly. Notice there that that verb works in verse 13 is present tense. And it's an active verb. The grammar might bore you, but the point shouldn't. What Paul is trying to say here is that God is consistently, right now, and all the time, doing his perfect, purposeful work in your life. Whether you feel like it or not, whether you can see the own growth that you're experiencing or not, whether you... Whether you can acknowledge to others, yeah, I feel like my walk's really strong right now. God is at work. He is right now working. That's the first thing Paul calls us to remember. Those are the facts, the things that we are to, if we want to grow, to to cling to, to take hold of by faith. You know, that means a lot for us now. But as I was thinking this week, I thought about two types of people, perhaps, that this point is particularly meaningful for. First, if you're here tonight and you are suffering, if you're here tonight and you're suffering, if you're presently undergoing or enduring pain, if, frankly, you feel like your life stinks and you're not sure if Christianity is worth it after all, if you're not sure if your relationships are going to break down or if you're going to have a job or if you're going to have any money left at the end of the month, then this text is particularly meaningful for you. Because what it's saying is that God is just as much at work in you when the external circumstances in your life seem to be going down as he is as when the external circumstances in your life seem to be going up. When things are trending really, really well, yes, God is at work. But especially when things are trending really, really badly, God is then at work. You know, Jesus says in John 15 that I am the vine and you who are connected to me by faith. You are the branches, and my Father is the gardener. And anyone who is truly connected to me, Jesus says, my Father is going to prune. Now, I don't know if you've ever realized it, but that is not a particularly happy metaphor. You might feel like you're being pruned right now. Have you ever seen a master gardener pruning a rose bush 
you'll think, man, that guy is way overdoing it. Like that rose bush, is, it looks like it's about to die. Like the pruning is significant. It's a big deal. But Jesus tells us that when you feel like you're being pruned through suffering, through pain, through loss, through grief, that is actually the moment when you can be most certain that God is at work in you. You know that you are being sanctified. You are being made more and more like Jesus in your suffering. That doesn't make your suffering good, but it does make it purposeful. And therefore, it does give us hope. Another type of person that should be helped and encouraged by the idea that God is always efficiently and purposefully working in us if we're followers of Jesus is the person who's a new Christian. You know, if you're here and you're a new Christian, if you're young in the faith, then, again, welcome to Christ Church. We're glad you're here, but you should know that things probably are going to get worse for you in a lot of ways. <laughs> welcome to Christianity. Um, Life doesn't all of a sudden magically get great all the time when you decide to follow Jesus. Because God's work in us is, like we just said, it's, it's a pruning experience very often. Or to use another metaphor from the Bible, it's like being refined in the fire. And if you're a new Christian, you might have been a Christian for just a couple of weeks or months, maybe a year or two, and you were really excited when you first became a Christian, but over time your excitement has dissipated a little bit and some old sin patterns... Maybe some old relationships, some old struggles, some old, old mental issues are creeping up again in your life. And you're beginning to wonder, man, am I, am I really saved? Like, is Jesus really with me? I thought this stuff was finished. I thought I was a Christian now. I thought I was past all this. Listen, being a Christian means that you never get past it all. If you could get past it all, you wouldn't need Jesus. No, Jesus puts you in a situation where you definitely won't get past it unless you run to him in faith and rest in him. That old saying that God will never give you more than you can handle, that's not true. It's not true. He gives you more than you can handle all the time so that you can know you're not supposed to handle it. You're supposed to let Jesus handle it. Cast your cares on him and he will care for you. So if you're a new Christian, don't be discouraged when you're continuing to fight sin. That's what it means to be a Christian. At least now you're aware that you have to fight it. <laughs> if you're a new Christian, don't be discouraged that you, you're suffering and some days you wake up and you're just in anguish or you're just being lazy or you just don't want to follow Jesus that day. That's normal for Christians. You need to know that. But God is at work consistently, effectively, purposefully. God works in. But Paul tells us something else here in this text. He tells us that also sanctification means that you work out. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling. So that is not a fact that we are to remember. He's already given us the fact in verse 13. God is at work. Verse 12 is, is a command. Verse 12 is an exhortation. Verse 12 is a summons to obedience. It's a call. And we find things like this all over the Bible. Paul says, because God is persistently, effectively, consistently at work in you, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, that's not necessarily the logical conclusion that we draw, but it is the biblical conclusion. Oftentimes, the logical conclusion is because God has saved me and because God is persistently and constantly at work in me, I can just relax and do whatever I want. I'm good to go. Let go and let God, as the old saying goes. That might be logical. The only problem with it is it's just not biblical. 
What's biblical is that God is at work in you. God has saved you 100% by his grace. God is transforming you into Jesus' image 100% by grace. Now work, fight, run the race as if to win the prize. Walk the walk. Don't just talk the talk. Paul says here that a part of your own growth and holiness implies your own striving to be holy. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. We talk about grace here all the time. God saves us by grace. That's our main part of our vision, that gospel, the grace changes, changes everything. That's absolutely true. I'm not saying here, and Paul's not saying, that we are to work toward our salvation with fear and trembling. He says we are to work out of our salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, you don't put forth effort and try to fight sin and live a righteous life so that God will one day maybe be pleased with you if you do it well enough. No, you work and put forth effort and try to live a righteous life out of God's ever-present favor with you already. You don't work to merit God's favor. You work because you've already freely been given God's favor and you're grateful for it. But you do work. You know, it's sort of like um, driving a car. If you're going to drive a car, um, the only thing that's going to get that car going, at least with any sort of efficiency or speed, is if the engine is turned on. But you still have to drive the car. I mean, until they invent robots that drive cars for us, then this illustration is null and void. But for now, you have to steer the wheel. You have to apply the brake. And people in San Antonio especially need to hit the gas um, on the interstate, in my opinion. But you have to do it. You've got to drive. Now, you would never be able to drive with any level of effectiveness if the engine wasn't on. It's the same with the Christian life. If you didn't have the spirit, if God wasn't already pleased with you in Jesus, if he wasn't at work in you constantly and persistently, your work would be completely futile. In fact, it's negative in its impact on you. You become just a religious legalist. But because the proverbial engine is on, the spirit is with you, you have the power. You are enabled to drive in the Christian life. Another illustration, making the same point. This weekend, I was out with the kids. We have this little basketball goal in our cul-de-sac that I pull out when we go out and shoot baskets. And it can get to maybe, you know, seven feet high, maybe. And, but Ben is two and Ben's about this tall. And, but Ben Ben can dribble, by the way. He's, he's going to be the athlete. He can dribble already and he does pretty well. But if he ever wants to make a bucket, I've got to lift him up, like as high as I can lift him up here. So I'm lifting him up, and I'm like, all right, Ben, put it in there. And he just sits there and holds the ball. I'm like, Ben, you've got to actually put the ball through the net. Ball, net, ball, net. Come on, work on it. Use the backboard. Ben has to do the work of putting the ball through the net, even when I'm holding him up. But if I wasn't holding him up, the chances Ben's field goal percentage is going to be very, very, very low, lower than Baylor's was when they lost on Thursday. Um, You see the point. Again, God is already holding you up. God is enabling you to grow, but you still have to work. Don't mistake the Christian life. The Christian life involves effort. It involves striving. It involves discipline. If you want to follow Jesus, that's what happens. If you want to grow, that's what you've got to do. You do it resting in God's grace, but your rest is in a sense, your rest is in a sense restlessly seeking holiness. So, so what does this work look like? You know, Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, what does that mean? Well, two things I'll mention, real brief, and then we're done. 
I think one thing it looks like and one thing we are to cultivate in the process of sanctification, of becoming more like Jesus, of getting saved, is humility. You know, it's not coincidental that immediately before our verses are the famous verses of Paul in Philippians 2 where he talks about the humility of Jesus. He says, Jesus became a man and emptied himself of all, of all the prerogatives of kingship and became a servant. And so Paul says, don't do anything out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Do what Jesus has done for you and what Jesus empowers you to do. Part of what it means to be a Christian and to grow in Christ's likeness, to be sanctified, is to exercise, to work at humility, to Think about what it looks like for you personally in your day-to-day life to consider others before you consider yourself. To think of others' interests and others' betterment before you think of your interests and your betterment. We are to do that in our minds. We are to do that with our words. And we are to do that in our, in our actions. Practically, you can only do that, by the way, when you're in community. Very, very rarely do you see yourself rightly. And particularly, do you see your pride and arrogance rightly when you're all by yourself? You need other people who love you enough to tell you that you need to grow in not thinking less of yourself, as C.S. Lewis put it, but in thinking of yourself less. You need to exercise and work in humility. Another way that we are to work, I think, according to Paul, according to the scripture, is not just to work into humility, but to work into holiness. And that's exactly what he's getting at right after our verses. In verse 15, he says, or 14, do all things without grumbling or questioning. Why? So that you may be blameless, holy, and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked generation. God is calling you in your own growth to rest and rely upon Jesus as he offers himself to you in the gospel. And as you are resting, to consistently avoid the wickedness that this world throws at us time and time again. And to consistently pursue a life that brings glory and honor to the Savior, Jesus Christ. God is calling you to think about whatever is profitable and whatever is pure and whatever is good and whatever is noble. And to put off all malice and self-righteousness and anger and lewdness and wickedness and deceit. And that requires you to work. It requires you to commit yourself to following the Savior. It requires your growth. But most of all, it requires your reliance upon what God is already doing in you. You see, you now have the power to do that because the Holy Spirit is taking up residence in you. You now have the ability to do that because you know fully as you exercise faith that God is for you in Jesus. So again, it comes back to believing the gospel. As you believe that the gospel is true, you are more and more enabled, more and more willing, more and more ready to work out, work out what God is working in. I was reading this week um, about Jack Nicklaus, who's the greatest golfer ever. It's not Tiger Woods. If you're under the age of 20, you might think that. It's not Tiger Woods. It's uh, Jack Nicklaus. And um, one of the fascinating things that I love about Jack Nicklaus is that every year at the end of the golf season, he would take a couple of months off and he would go back to his home state of Ohio and he would rest and he would spend time with his family and he would just sort of recuperate. And then in about February, a little before this time of year, he would start gearing up for the masters, which is in April. And the way he would do it every year, and this is the best golfer in the world, is he would go to his old high school coach 
And he would begin lessons with his high school coach again. And at the first lesson, Jack Nicholas, the greatest golfer in the world, would approach his coach and his coach would pull out a seven iron and say, Jack, this is a golf club. This is how you hold a golf club. This is how you swing. You keep your head still. You keep your arms straight. Basically not what I'm doing right now. This is the way you hit a four iron. This is the way you hit a wood. He would start over with him at the very beginning because Jack Nicholas knew that at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how successful he was, he needed to go back to the basics consistently time and time again. You know, that's what Paul is calling you to here. If you follow Jesus, go back to the basics. Remember the facts. The gospel is true. God is for you. And then get to work. Practice. Because practice one day will make perfect by God's grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us through Jesus. We thank you that you do change us and make us more and more like him over time. That you conform us into his image that you make us more and more pleasing to you, that you give us the ability to obey you, not so that we can earn your favor, but because your favor is already with us. And so, God, we ask that you would help us to believe that you are at work in us, both to will and to work for your good pleasure. Help us to believe that Christ has died and Christ has risen and Christ will come again, that our sins have been paid for, that we are dead to the guilt of sin and dead to the power of sin. And may that give us a ferocity, a passion, an intensity in working out our own salvation with fear and trembling in the process of sanctification. So give to us, we ask, victory over our sin. Give to us a passionate desire to make everything in our life accord with your law. Give us the will and the ability to love and please you because we know we are already loving and pleasing to you in Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.